As you stand before we get started, long before we actually get started on anything sermonic, one of your deacons was looking out for you and being a servant, and he brought me a little slip of paper. There is a gold Ford Ranger in the parking lot with its lights on in the rain. The last part of the license plate is CP7. That's not a sermon illustration, that's real. None of you are moving. But if that's your truck, you should go turn off the lights, unless you want to thumb a ride home. <laughs> we do know whose it is. <laughs> Sorry. This morning we'll be in the last half of the second chapter of John. We started last week with the beautiful scene of Jesus proclaiming, I am your joy in all of its fullness. At the wedding in Cana, when he turned water into wine. And this morning's is going to be much more uncomfortable for us. Little Christians, as we go through this passage and as we go through this sermon, I want you to think about all that we saw last week, that Jesus really does care about our joy and celebration. And then listen to this passage, listen to our sermon, and see if you can tell your parents or your friends after the worship service what Jesus cares about in this morning's story. This is the good news of Jesus held out to us in the second half of the second chapter of John's gospel. It is uncomfortable, but all the beauty of the Lord we spoke of a moment ago is in this story as well. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. After the wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you really raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word by your spirit to hold out the beauty of your Son. And as is often the case, we come to another passage this morning that holds out beauty that feels awkward and uncomfortable for us. Here we see the beauty of Jesus in the midst of anger, with zeal that makes us nervous, but it is His zeal that cleanses us as well. And so we ask that You would continue Your zealous work of sanctification in us, Your zealous work of making us a holy people, a spotless bride, a renewed and made whole priesthood by the work of your Spirit. We ask that you do these things 
through your word. And as we leave, as we leave worship and continue to be changed by the power of your spirit, we ask all of these things for your glory and for our good. Amen. Please be seated. I said it at the beginning, and if you knew that this story was coming, you knew that I was right in the introduction. This is a very abrupt change. Last week, we had Jesus and his mom and his brothers and his disciples at a family wedding, enjoying the mundane. And then Jesus proclaiming himself to be the fullness of joy and celebration, the fullness of of every messianic prophecy that the world would be restored and made new. That a world of curse and thorns would be turned into vats of wine and celebration and shouts of joy. And John only gives us one verse to make the transition. After this, he went down to Capernaum. And then he starts right in. When the Passover was at hand, Jesus went into Jerusalem. And here's what he did. It is a radically different picture of Jesus. And John has put them together for us in one chapter on purpose. Lots of people debate whether or not this this scene actually happened at the beginning of his ministry or at the end where the other gospel writers put it. And I'll tell you, I don't really care. I'm not going to try and solve the mystery for you this morning. It's not a riddle for us to chew on. John does make a break in verse 12. He's been going through his gospel, making this chronological sequence plain for us. The next day, and the next day, and the third day. And then he moves on. After this, they went down to Capernaum for a few days. And then he moves to whenever the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So there is every possibility this is told out of order. And it's half as likely that it's told in order. The point is that John has put these things by the Spirit's inspiration, side by side in one chapter. I really wrestled with it a week and a half ago when I was preparing last week's sermon, whether or not I should preach the whole chapter at once. Whether or not we should see side by side in a single sermon the joy and celebration of Jesus and Jesus holding a whip of cords in one hand and driving people out of the temple. I decided both of these needed a fuller treatment, that we would split them up, but I wanted to circle back this week and remind you they sit side by side. That last week's passage had wine and a wedding feast and dances and singing. And this Jesus is kicking sheep and taking names. This Jesus walks in and kicks stuff over, overturns tables, yells and shouts and beats people. If someone came into the theater this morning doing this, Nick Sloan would tackle them. (laughs) This didn't go over well. You know it from the rest of the story, but because it's Jesus, we try to ignore it. This was awkward, to say the least. This was more than just impolite. This was very offensive. As much as the disciples loved to see what he did last time, the story indicates here, John hints that they were more than just a little embarrassed in this story. Notice that they don't 
actually take stock of everything until after the resurrection. Then they remember these things that were said. Then all of this makes sense. But at the time, they're almost just as clueless. And so I'm not going to soften it for you this morning. John's focus in telling the story, even the way he says it, is on Jesus driving people out. The animals are almost incidental. It says in 15, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. The them is the people. He is whipping people in the temple. Money changers and traders. And the way Mark puts it, the worshipers too. The same people that are buying along with the people who are selling. And so one minute you have Jesus celebrating at a wedding and the next you have Jesus flying into a blind rage. A couple of weeks ago, John Berger in his setup for worship, actually it was his setup for sharing the peace of Christ, he talked about peace being worth conflict. And he quoted a movie that will still remain unnamed. And he said, there is a peace on the other side of conflict worth having. It only comes on the other side of conflict. And this is one of those times. Jesus is actually after the peace of the church. But it's actually going to cost some conflict along the way. This passage is not opposed to the vows we take as members, when we promise to study the purity and the peace of the church. Jesus isn't a bad member of the church. But he pursues the church's purity here in ways that make us very uncomfortable when we think about the word peace. So if we're, gonna, if we're going to understand the story, we have to know this is not Jesus in a blind rage. This is not Jesus losing his cool and doing something he regrets. You may be embarrassed by this story. You need to remember all the way through it that Jesus wasn't embarrassed once. He's not embarrassed now. John gave it to you because he's not embarrassed. Because this isn't a story of blind rage. This is, the way verse 13 sets it up, a Passover story. And so John moves us from themes of recreation to themes of deliverance. Not that the two are opposed, but he highlights one for us here. Remember, the Passover is not just a pleasant remembrance about a sacrifice. We talk often about Jesus being the true Passover, and we normally emphasize the fact that he was sacrificed, the spotless, innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world's sin of the world through his sacrifice and rising. But remember the original Passover story included a list of awful events, a list of awful things that the Lord did to the people of Egypt and then brought his people out of slavery for the purpose of worship. And that's what we have here. That's what Jesus is doing as the real Passover, as the fulfillment of that story, looking ahead to what Jesus would do in ministry for us. 
we have the violent leading out and deliverance of his people for the purpose of worship. You hear it echoed in the prophecies of the last prophets in the Old Testament. Zechariah ends, the final verse of Zechariah's prophecy, describing the day of the Lord, ends this way, There shall no longer be any who trade in the house of the Lord. And then maybe a little bit more familiar for us, when we went through Malachi several weeks ago, in Malachi 3, the prophet says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And so there's all the hope of Jesus, the Lord himself, coming in to his temple. And at the same time, there's the fear that Jesus, the Lord himself, is coming to the temple And all is not right. And so just like the original Passover, when Yahweh leads His people out from hard labor in Egypt, now we have Jesus, the full and true Passover, leading His people out of slavery to corrupt worship, to save them for pure worship in Himself. And just like the first Passover came with wonders and terrors, this one does too. They are shorter and they are more condensed. But the fact that you feel uncomfortable when you read, he takes up a whip of cords and drives them out, is right. You shouldn't be embarrassed by Jesus, but it should make you uncomfortable to think about this kind of holiness walking into the temple. This kind of holiness being present with His church all of a sudden. Jesus comes to the temple in Jerusalem. and He's not surprised by it. But we should be. We should expect that people will be worshiping and praying. Families will be bringing children in, teaching them to worship. People will be weeping, people will be rejoicing, people will be asking for things from the Lord and giving thanks that He's given them what they need when they need it. And instead, He finds a strip mall. He finds a pawn shop and a payday loan center, money changers who for a significant fee will change your coin so that you can pay your temple tax without having to use any money that has a pagan symbol on it. No image of Caesar on these, please. It's only a 20% markup. But you're going to need new coins, so step over here. You have people extorting the poor and extorting worshipers, but you also have worshipers going along with it. You have worshipers twisted on both sides of the money changer's table. And so Jesus comes in with wonders and terrors, just like the first Passover, and he drives his people out of slavery. And he does it with cleansing. He doesn't hesitate 
He doesn't clear his throat. He doesn't say, if I could have everyone's attention, if everyone will just look at me for a moment, I'm going to need everyone to leave orderly. He just makes a whip out of cords, presumably, by the way, out of articles for worship. Out of some of the linens and the cords and tassels on things inside the temple. He grabs the pure articles of worship, makes a whip, and drives out defiled worshipers and all the trappings, all the corruption and stains. Because he is zealous for clean worship, a clean temple. I was tempted when telling Jan what to put in the bulletin. I was tempted to title this sermon, What Would Jesus Scourge? I decided against it. I realized that was too catchy and made too light everything that Jesus actually does here. That is a horrible sermon title, but that is a worthwhile question to ask. When we come to a passage like this, we should not ask, what did those people get wrong? We should see the zeal of Jesus for purified worship in a clean temple. We should know that we are, by His Spirit, His new temple of worship. And it is worth asking, if He came to us this morning... What things would he drive out? I can think of several things inside our church that he would drive out. And these aren't things in you that aren't in me. These are things in all of us. It's very quiet now. I know I've made you uncomfortable. It should be a little uncomfortable. If Jesus came into New St. Peter's, if he listened to us talk, if he sat through worship with us, where would he find the trappings of corrupt worship? Where would he find extortion and greed? I think there are several good gifts that the Lord has given us over the years at New St. Peter's. And we've set up a strip mall to buy and sell them together in places where we should worship. I think this includes the way we love personalities in the church, the way we canonize certain preaching styles, our musical preferences, and the idea, as I've heard us say repeatedly, that we have gotten worship right. I think you should love your pastors. I want you to know, over the years, there are things I have come to love and appreciate in Colin and in Rich, and I hope there are things that you've come to appreciate in me. But whether it's me or Rich or Colin or any who come after us years from now, we should not rally around the praise of any one personality or any two or any three You should love your elders, but you should not talk about how funny Blake or Mark or David are. Not ever, but that shouldn't be the focus. 
We shouldn't canonize certain preaching styles and decide that these are better in and of themselves because the style is better. The three of us have had a range of preaching styles, and I'm glad if some of you resonate more or less with any of them. But at the end of the day, sermons cannot come down to a critique of whether or not they're narrative, poetic, theological, didactic, conversational, propositional, inductive, or deductive enough. And I hear us very often talk about the quality of preaching, of sermons, or a certain preacher. Not just in our church. You talk about podcasts that you listen to. This one guy really gets it right. If you listen to sermons and come away talking about the beauty of the preacher's words or the cleverness of his insight, whether that's Tim Keller, Mark Driscoll, Rich, Colin, or me, it's wrong. The Lord has gifted His church with preachers. The Lord has gifted His church with preaching. But those things are always supposed to move us to praise Jesus. I hope that you are moved and helped by our music. Our musicians do a wonderful job, in my opinion. But whether or not our music suits your preference, whether or not you think our musical style is better or worse than the church down the street, it is the privilege of singing praise to the Lord, of having the words of His gospel put into our mouths collectively that should occupy our thoughts. And the idea that we or any other church has gotten worship right that we or any other church have gotten church right. Jesus would drive that out of here with a whip made of cords. And if He heard us saying it, He might drive us out with it. Worship is not competitive. Please, Be glad for the church the Lord has given you in New St. Peter's. Be glad to belong to each other in the gospel. Be glad to hear the word preached together. Be glad to celebrate the sacraments together. Be glad for your home groups together and the friendships you have and the ministry that the Lord has given you together. But by all means, never leave here and compare this church to any other. Never ask us to stack up and never ask them to stack up against us. Because you can't worship versus someone else. You cannot praise the Lord for extra points. Worship done right is completely unenamored with the style of worship the quality of the worshipers. Because when we focus on those things, we know we have no purity of our own. We have no beauty of our own. The only beauty worth praising is God Himself. And so when Jesus went into the temple and drove the people and the animals out, and when He knocked over the money changers' table... And he gave them a sermon at the top of his lungs. 
when there was a snarl on his lips and he said, take these things away, get them out of my father's house, they have no business here. He wasn't doing it because he hates these things. He doesn't hate the sacrifices that these animals are intended for. He doesn't even hate the people who are doing it. It's because he loves them. It's actually an act of love that drives him to do this. Though it's not normally the way we think of love. This is not the exceptional story where we get to see Jesus abusing his people. Just like the Passover, this is a story of liberation. Driving them out at great pain, Jesus is liberating his people. Unless we miss any of it, John makes sure that we don't get away from this story before he turns our eyes to the resurrection. And that's not clever on his part, it's what Jesus did in the midst of it. When Jesus came in, kicking things over and pushing people out, they did what you'd expect. They asked to see some credentials. They asked to see what authority he had to actually do these things. Look, Jesus, if you're going to renovate the temple like this, I'm at least going to need to see a permit or something. Do you have credentials that back up your ability to do this? What's going on? And Jesus never indulges this selfish demand for a sign. The sign he gives them won't come until the end of his earthly ministry. And so he says, go ahead and destroy this temple and see what happens. Destroy this temple, I dare you, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they looked around at the pillars and walls and said, this guy is out of his mind. And as you know, and as Robert Plant knows, sometimes words can have two meanings. When Jesus said, destroy this temple, he didn't point to the walls and the pillars. He didn't point to the sash on the wall that he had just ripped down to make into a whip of cords. He said all of this to them with a finger in his own chest, destroy this temple Go ahead and tear it down in three days. I will raise it back up. And the Jews argue with him because they don't understand more than that first meaning of temple. They don't understand that they are standing not inside the temple, but in the presence of the temple himself. And they don't understand that this Jesus wants to build a new temple out of renewed worshipers. but they're not the only ones that miss it. Jesus offered them a sign, a sign that will not happen until years from now, the sign of His resurrection. And even His disciples missed it at the time. When, therefore, He was raised from the dead, then His disciples remembered that He had said this. Then they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And then this quirky story this odd, uncomfortable, embarrassing event that they lived through actually had meaning. In our Friday morning Bible study, several weeks ago, some guys and I were reading through the Psalms. 
And Jason Bobo pointed out that Trimper Longman has said, we should always hear the psalms sung in Jesus' mouth first before we can sing them ourselves. And if you're reading through Bonhoeffer's life together this semester, you will come very quickly to his statement that the Psalter is Jesus' prayer book. Before it ever belongs to the church, this is a collection of prayers and hymns and songs sung by our Savior with full emotion and full meaning because He is the fulfillment of all of them. And in this passage, we find out the first disciples knew that too. It wasn't until later, it wasn't until after His resurrection when the whole story took on meaning that then they remembered Psalm 69. And they remembered that it was written of Jesus centuries before, zeal for your house will consume me. But as John puts this passage from the Psalms in front of us, as Jesus lives the reality of it, and as the disciples remember it years from now after the resurrection, and as we rehearse it this morning, two millennia after these events, we need more context than just the, that short phrase. The whole verse reads this way, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And when we hear that, we think, the violence He pours out in the temple which is partially in view, but the verse goes on. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who reproach God have fallen on me. And so this story is not primarily about Jesus purifying and cleansing worship and worshipers by pouring out His wrath on them. You get a small snippet of what zealous, Discipline looks like for the Lord's people. And no, it is not comfortable and pretty. But this is not a story about ultimate wrath poured out. About God losing His temper and seeing things He doesn't like and burning them away. When Jesus owns the psalm for Himself, zeal for your house will consume me, He also looks ahead to owning all of it the reproach of those who hate God will fall on me. And the sign that verifies I have the authority to do this is that I will take my life up again after it does. Inside the event, cryptically and ironically, in ways that the original participants did not understand, Jesus points all of them not to the violence He just meted out, Not to the judgment, he just gave them a small glimpse of with a whip. He points them ahead to all of the judgment that will fall on him and crush him for our sin and the truth and the beauty and the celebration that lies on the other side of it. He will be raised again. John said it as we headed into confession of sin this morning. That we often feel chastened by the law of God. But the 
crucifixion always pointed us ahead to resurrection. It wasn't fulfilled until there was resurrection in the gospel, until the good news overwhelms us that Jesus really was raised from among the dead, and he raises us with himself, not just to be driven out of a corrupt temple, not just to be chastised for the corruptions we hold on to, but to be raised new with him, to become his new temple filled with his worship. And so zeal for his house, zeal for the Father's worship consumed him, and then he took the reproach that belonged to us, the chastisement and punishment that belonged to us, And the real violence of his revolution is the violence that Jesus accepts in himself, in his body on the cross. In the pain of his anguished soul, abandoned by the Father on the cross in our place. Always looking ahead to the joy of resurrection as the real sign that these things are right. And not just right, these things are beautiful and worthwhile. And so as we consider this story, as you consider the corruptions of your own worship and the things that live in your own hearts, the things that you want to love in Jesus' place, remember that He shows you those not to be cruel. He shows you those not to abuse you, but to liberate you. Always remember that John 2 begins with Jesus turning water into wine. Just like the book of Malachi beginning before all of its hard words with the declaration, I have loved you. And concluding with the promise, I will send my messenger of the covenant. I will send my son, the son of righteousness, to rise over you with healing in his wings. Remember that John 2 begins with water turned into wine. The strong declaration that celebration is where all of this is aimed. And in the middle, yes, it's uncomfortable, but it ends with resurrection. In between those two things, the celebration of Jesus turning water into wine and the joy and promise of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus shows himself to be the perfect and perpetual, most zealous reformer of the church that the church has ever had. He is jealous for singular devotion and love from His people, for Himself and the Father and the Spirit, and He is unwilling to share those with anyone else. He is zealous for this kind of worship, cleansed of all contaminations and distractions inside His people. That includes driving out all abuse and extortions and greedy pursuits and anything we would praise in His place. Jesus is zealous for you, New St. Peter's. He is zealous for you as His house, the house of His Father's worship, and He will stop at nothing to have all of you for Himself. Praise be to God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your kindness to us in sending Jesus the Son to be all that we could not under the curse, to live and suffer under the curse with us, but also to drive out the curse inside of us. 
Father, we thank you that you discipline us as beloved children, and you hold out to us the beauty of your holiness constantly. You hold out to us not just the severity of discipline, but the beauty of restoration, the beauty of redemption, the beauty of celebration in Jesus. Father, would you make all of these things true in us at once? Would you give us the simple joy of simple worship that has, like a vibrant fire, both light and heat, the heat of warm affection for you and for your Son and for the work of your Spirit, and real light, the light of your holy will for us, that expels all of the darkness down in the corners and the nooks of our heart and in our practices and in our conversations. Not for our pain, but for our rejoicing. Do these things in us by your grace and by the power of your Spirit. As we look ahead to our final resurrection, as we rejoice in Jesus' resurrection, the promise that while you will stop at nothing to have all of us for yourself, you cannot be stopped. Your grace and your gospel cannot be stopped even in death. Do these things for us, for our good and our great rejoicing and for your glory. We ask them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.